Schools are already struggling during COVID-19. Now President Trump is demanding they fully reopen or lose even more money. Could pro sports pull off a pandemic comeback? How the Padres and Major League Baseball are trying to get back in the game. And the thin blue line, a symbol of law enforcement unity, becomes a cultural flashpoint as Americans call for police reform. I'm Mark Sauer, and the KPBS Roundtable starts now. Welcome to our discussion of the week's top stories. I'm Mark Sauer. And joining me on our remote KPBS roundtable today are KPBS education reporter Joe Hong, Annie Heilbrunn, multimedia sports reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune, and David Hernandez, public safety reporter for the Union Tribune. School's out for the summer, but it's anything but a relaxing time off for our educators, students, and parents. Schools expect to return in late August, and President Trump is demanding they do so in person. But that raises serious issues about public safety and our economic recovery. We're going to dive into a busy week with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Well, let's start with a broad look at the push to reopen schools for the fall. Where do things stand right now for our local school districts? And I know this is all fluid. Yeah, uh, no, that's a great point. You know, we could talk about this today and things could change tomorrow. Uh, so I just want folks to keep that in mind. But right now, school districts across San Diego County are really hustling to sort of reopen as much as they can. With that in mind, they have contingency plans to move back to distance learning if there is a spike in cases during the school year. But the priority is to reopen fully. In San Diego Unified, of course, that's our largest district. It says it would offer in-person, online, a mix of both for the upcoming school year. Uh, that seems like a lot to ask of teachers. Are they on board with this? And what's the survey of parents showing? Yeah, so I think teachers are on board with what, what the district has in place currently. I think the key word for that district is choice. So it comes down to what parents and families are feeling comfortable with. Uh, students who have older relatives at home uh, would be able to continue distance learning in the fall. And teachers, you know, they want to they, they make sure students and their families feel safe. So everyone's sort of on the same page as far as that district goes. And uh, that survey, I think it went out earlier, and maybe there'll be another survey coming up, but uh, parents, uh, they're uh, kind of back and forth on, on exactly what they want to do or a hybrid of, of their choices, right? Right, yeah. I think for the most part, parents want schools to reopen if they can. But there, there was, last time I spoke with district officials, there was a small percentage who, again, didn't feel safe sending their kids to school whether it be because they live with grandparents or because uh, the students themselves have health, underlying health issues. So. And in the South Bay, Sweetwater, it's a district with a history of problems in recent years. And they recently announced job cuts, partly due to the COVID-19 fallout. What's the latest going on in uh, South Bay and Sweetwater? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, Sweetwater, they finalized layoffs that were initially approved in, in February. Uh, that included more than 200 teachers and staff. And that saved them about $20 million, but they're gonna, they're gonna need to close about 10 million more uh, in the budget deficit. And uh, on top of that, a uh, state audit found that the district had mismanaged its funds and the, the audit also found evidence of fiscal financial fraud in the district from a few years ago when they approved raises for teachers based on insufficient information. And a couple of weeks ago, based on that audit, the superintendent has 
temporarily resigned or has been put on administrative leave. So a real mess down there. Uh, is it possible, is that an option that the state could actually come in and take over a district that's in crisis like that? Yeah, that, that does happen. Uh, it's too early to tell at this point what's going to happen at Sweetwater. That audit I mentioned has been forwarded to uh, local agencies like the district attorney's office in San Diego who will investigate further and sort of see what the next steps need to be for that district. But yeah, it's, it's fair to say that even, even without the pandemic, that district has some challenges ahead. Now, President Trump is adding a political angle. He wants all schools to fully reopen in-person classes uh, against his own CDC's guidelines, which I guess could also be fluid at this point. Uh, perhaps it's, this is giving an appearance of normalcy heading into the fall election. What's the president calling for? Yeah, so uh, the president and sort of the, the U.S. Department of Education, the, the Secretary Betsy DeVos, they both sort of want schools to reopen as soon as possible. And uh, a big part of that, you know, is, is the economy. Reopening schools is sort of the foundation to restarting the, the national economy. Trump and, and DeVos sort of threatened to withhold federal funding if schools don't reopen. And of course, the economy and the, the virus, as we've seen over these many months, are, are both tied together here. How much power does Trump really have when it comes to withholding money for education? Would Congress need to get involved in this? Yeah, so the Department of Education, uh, which is run by Betsy DeVos, can withhold federal funding, you know, uh, if, tr if that's sort of what Trump and, and DeVos sort of decide to do. But, you know, keep in mind that federal funding only makes up about 10% of of school funding in California, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a huge uh, cut, but still significant, I'd say. And it's not just K through 12 feeling the pressure from the Trump administration this week. ICE announced uh, international students who don't take in person classes might be forced to head back to their home countries. How are local universities like UCSD and SDSU responding? First of all, they were surprised. It sort of came out of nowhere on Monday when that guidance from uh, Immigration and, and Customs Enforcement came out. I spoke with the director of the International Student Center at UC San Diego, and she did not, she was concerned, but she wasn't panicked. And it seemed like the university would be able to work with international students to make sure they are enrolled in at least one in person class. They're looking at their own course offerings to see what they can expand. And um, yeah, they really advise that students don't make any sudden changes to their academic schedules or any sudden changes to their, um, they, they, they want to make sure students aren't trying to leave the country right now. And some universities have gotten involved in lawsuits over this. Is uh, the local universities involved in any lawsuits? Yeah, so the UC system uh, filed a lawsuit against uh, the federal government arguing that uh, ICE did not follow proper procedures before um, creating this policy. And uh, as you say, local universities, were, they've got a mix of online and in-person instruction plan, right? That's right. Yeah, UC San Diego, about 70% of their classes will be online in the fall. Um, and San Diego State University is offering about 200 of its courses uh, in person. So that's a lot of like uh, classes for nursing or in the, in the sciences, any of the, the lab classes, those are the ones that sort of need to be held in a building. Teaching is a difficult job under the best circumstances. What kind of toll is the COVID-19 experience taking on our teachers? What are you hearing from them on a personal level? I think it's important to, it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these teachers are parents themselves. And uh, the, the teachers I've spoken with, um, 
they've really struggled balancing their parenting and making sure their their own kids are are learning uh, while also trying to teach over Zoom and um, just the logistics of teaching online has been challenging. A lot of students are not connecting. A lot of students aren't participating and doing assignments. So um, that is something that teachers are are hoping that uh, districts will work out by the time uh, we launch in the fall. And are there any stories and issues we should be keeping an eye on as the weeks uh, go on toward the fall? What still needs to be figured out between now and the start of the school year? I'm curious to know what the specific sort of plans are for reopening. What's the classroom going to look like? What's the school day going to look like? And apart from that, I think the big story is going to be federal funding. Is more federal money going to come in? Because right now, San Diego Unified has enough state funding to do a full reopening safely until January. But without federal funding, they're going to need to go back to distance learning halfway through the school year in January. So something has to happen on that front. That's right. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you, Mark. For those of us who watch on TV or in the stands, baseball is a game. But for players and team owners, it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise bleeding money every day it shut down during the COVID-19 pandemic. In recent days, the San Diego Padres and 29 other major league teams got back to work. They're calling it a summer camp ahead of a hopeful 60-day sprint season set to begin later this month. But already we're seeing players opt out, get sick, and wonder if this should even be happening. Our guest is Annie Heilbrunn, a sports multimedia journalist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Annie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's great to be here. Well, let's start with the news this week. One of the Padres outfielder, Tommy Pham, recovering from COVID-19. What's his status? Yeah, he continues to recover. He's got a number of touch points, about six steps that he needs to hit before he can rejoin the team. And one of those is having two negative tests within uh, two separate 24 hour periods. So he hasn't done that yet. They're still allowing him to recover, but he is asymptomatic and working out at home. He's been posting some videos to his social media accounts of him working out. And what are some of the safety protocols the Padres and other baseball teams are implementing? They're getting tested every other day for COVID-19. Those tests are being sent to a private lab in Utah where they're being turned around within 24 hours as long as there's no delays. They're getting their temperature checked every day. Some of them are choosing to wear masks on the field, but they all are required to wear masks inside the clubhouse and inside the facilities. They're also supposed to be standing six feet apart at all times, even on the baseball field. So they're trying to put these into play before games start to get used to them a little bit. But of course, what they do outside of the ballpark is really up to the players, how much of a precaution they take. And no high fives and uh, spitting and sunflower <laughs> seeds and all the rest. You got it, no high fives, no spitting, no sunflower seeds. Um, they're not supposed to you know, really chew anything. They can't spit any gum out, anything like that. And even in the dugout, they can't be sitting next to one another. They can't lean over the rail and watch the game. They have to be sitting in the stands four seats away and, and four seats apart. So there's gonna be a number of things that they're actually practicing now to get used to because they've never had to do this before where they can't just be around one another. It's, it's gonna be really interesting when a team has a walk-off win or something like that and they can't rush each other and celebrate in a huddle like they normally do. The silent celebration. Uh, so the Padres are preparing for the season at Petco Park and the University of San Diego. But as you're noting there, they're creatures of habit and routine. What's changed for them as they try to salvage this season? 
Yeah, you nailed it, Mark. I mean, these guys crave routine. They love routine. And for a lot of them, it's even the veterans, you know, they've been in the same routines for the most part for, you know, 10, 15 years already now. So this is a total wild card. Some of them were working out at USD. They had to split the field because they're not all allowed to be on the same field because of social distancing. So, um, you know, there's a lot of differences. They've got to change up, you know, how often they come into the, the clubhouse, how often they get temperature checked, things like that. So the routines are really very different. And even things like having, you know, not being able to lick their hand. If you're a pitcher, you have to have your own rosin bag, things like that, that they're really having to get used to right now. But the routine thing is really something that's mentally going to be something that they have to practice and just 60 games no fans in the stadiums i mean this is really going to be a different kind of season yeah not having fans in the stadium is is really going to make a difference because these players especially in baseball they thrive on the fans they get energy off the fans and so not having fans in stands is going to really we're really going to see the effects of that once games start now they're practicing right now with um, experimenting with crowd noise, piping in crowd noise and putting things in the seats like stuffed animals or whatnot uh, and playing music, but nothing is going to simulate having fans in stands. And that's really going to be something that's going to take a while to get used to. Now, what happens if, for example, the Dodgers are in town for a series, a few players on either team test positive after the first game, two weeks of quarantine, those teams shut down, what happens? Yeah, Mark, this is really the big question because MLB hasn't really set forth a plan as to what, what the landmarks are to shut everything down. So it's really up to the MLB commissioner, Rob Manfred, to decide when the integrity of the game is being compromised. That's how they are stating it. Whether they have a number that they're not putting out in public is, is uh, not known, but it really is unclear right now what it's gonna take, whether it's two players, five players, um, these guys will be traveling. They'll be on the road. What happens if someone gets sick on the road? Will he be allowed to fly back or, or will he have to stay there? There's so many unknowns as far as what they're going to do when someone tests positive as far as games start. And as far as pl teams playing against one another, it's a great question. You know, if someone gets sick and gets COVID-19 and they've just played another team, well, according to MLB regulations, anyone who's come in contact with a guy who tests positive has to be out for at least 24 hours until they show a negative test. So that could mean entire games are canceled, but we really just don't know at this point. And you not only cover the Padres for the Union Tribune, your regular presence during TV coverage on Fox Sports San Diego. What's changed about the way members of the media can physically access and cover the baseball team now? Yeah, this is really different. So normally, uh, as members of the media, we go into the clubhouse before and after every game, and we have about an hour in there to talk to players face-to-face. -face. And that's really where we get our stories and our tidbits and things that are, are you know, not known to fans that we get to report. And right now, we're not allowed to be anywhere near players or coaches. They are considered Tier 1. We are Tier 3, and the two will never meet. So um, everything is being done over Zoom calls. And, and that definitely is just not the same as far as being able to walk up to a player and start talking to a player. So we're having group Zoom calls as it is, but there will be no one-on-one -on -one interactions this year between the media and between players and coaches. Wow, that is something really different. <laughs> Boy, it seems like a million years ago, but the Washington Nationals in October won the uh, World Series and they're their closer, Sean Doolittle, uh, described sports as a reward for a functioning society, alluded to uh, the fact we might not uh, be there here yet in, in this 
odd season that they're embarking on. What's your sense of the players' comfort level during this time? Uh, I think that the players are split. Sean Doolittle has made some really great points. Um, we've heard Bryce Harper say that he's going to play, but he doesn't feel comfortable around it. Like you can really see that some players are deciding to play for now, but they're a little tormented by it. And of course, players are in different positions. If a player's made a lot of money and he's able to say, you know what, I'm not playing this season. It's a lot different maybe from a guy who is a, a you know, first or second year player who doesn't feel like he can take off the whole season financially. But um, certainly there, it's split. There's people who you know, think that, that this should go on as normal and they're excited, but it's hard to get all the way excited for baseball when we see what's going on in the world with rising tests and rising positive cases and still a lot of, um, a lot of hot spots in the country with the coronavirus. Well, and of course, uh, baseball is the national pastime. We rely so much on sports to be a d- distraction, especially in these depressing times, as you note. Uh, what are you hearing from fans? How are they feeling about the return of baseball? Yeah, I think they're split as well. I think that people are having a hard time fully jumping on board. And I think there's a lot of people who think the season might not even start. Like it's not even going to get there because it's going to shut down before they even reach opening day, which is really just a few weeks away. Um, And certainly a a lot of fans who don't think it's going to finish or make it to the World Series. But at the same time, I will say when you get inside the ballpark and you're sitting there and you're watching practice for a moment, Everything feels normal. You know, you do feel like uh, it's just guys messing around on the baseball field, having fun, playing the game that they love. And then you see the masks and then you think about the cases and everything kind of rushes back at you. So it is a little bit of a conflicting feeling, I think, for everyone as they try to follow this. And that's what's going to make this season really interesting. Keep the shots tight on the pitchers and the batter and the catcher and the fielders. Don't back up to look at the fans in the stands because they're not there. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, no, to your point, I mean, that's the thing, you know, it's kind of like you're trying to find normalcy in a very abnormal world right now. And as much as you want to pretend it's there, it's not quite there. I've been speaking with Annie Heilbrunn, sports multimedia journalist for the San Diego Union Tribune. Thanks a lot, Annie. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Since we spoke with Annie earlier this week, another Padre player, Jorge Mateo, has also tested positive for the coronavirus. There are four words that are getting added scrutiny amid the national upheaval over police use of force. The thin blue line. Local law enforcement say it's a term that symbolizes the unique camaraderie among those sworn to protect our communities. But some say it encourages a culture of secrecy and elitism among those who wear a badge. Reporter David Hernandez examined this aspect of police culture for the San Diego Union Tribune. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, why did you decide to pursue the story in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, I wrote a story about um, a group that was pushing for the San Diego County Sheriff's Department to remove any display of uh, thin blue line flags from uh, vehicles, uniforms, And after that story, uh, an editor thought it was a really good idea to take a look at the history. Um, So we were kind of curious if people really knew the idea behind the thin blue line, where it originated, how it's evolved, um, and where its acceptance stands today. And was there a common theme or consensus from law enforcement uh, that you talked with about what the thin blue line means to them? Yeah, the overwhelming majority of police officers and officials I spoke with um, repeatedly mentioned the word solidarity. They view it as a show of solidarity and also as a show of pride. 
for a profession that I think a lot of us can agree is dangerous and puts officers' lives on the line. The criticism uh, gets at the idea behind the thin blue line. And that idea is that uh, police are the force that safeguards society against chaos and disorder, uh, that they're there to protect and serve and be that force. Um, and so critics say that that fails to recognize the community's role in public safety. Some also associate it with uh, the blue wall of silence, which is a code among law enforcement officers to not report misconduct. So uh, that association leads to some mistrust within the community. And in your story, you tell us about a newly formed group, the Imperial Beach People's Alliance. It wants the Sheriff's Department to distance itself from this imagery. Why is that? What are they demanding? Yeah, so they have a series of demands that they've put forward. One of the demands is for the Sheriff's Department to remove any display of the thin blue line flag from vehicles, uniforms. And so the Sheriff's Department doesn't currently display the flag on vehicles and doesn't allow any insignia with a thin blue line. But as I've mentioned, there are some officers across the county that have been seen wearing thin blue line flags on face coverings. So the group is really aiming for the department to just ban across the board any display of the thin blue line flag. And one of the leaders, as I've mentioned, pointed to uh, the blue wall of silence. So he essentially views the thin blue line as a wall that, that leads to mistrust within the community. And police practices are a major component of the Black Lives Matter movement. And San Diego's seen its own share of protests. Did you get any sense from the local police you spoke with that they're moved in any way by this national conversation? Yeah, definitely. What I'm hearing from them is that they're listening. Uh, we also have seen some actions from both within the police department, but also elected leaders. So we've seen uh, banning of the use of uh, the carotid restraint, which has been controversial for many years now. We've also seen calls for a new commission to investigate uh, instances of police misconduct and police shootings. And uh, one thing that I also find very interesting is that we've seen during recent police shootings, uh, the quick release of a body-worn camera and other video from those instances. And that's uh, within the San Diego Police Department in, in those two cases. So we are seeing some changes, um, but certain uh, city leaders and definitely uh, a large group of activists um, insist that this should be the start of many more changes to come. Now we've had a couple of incidents of San Diego police using deadly force in recent weeks. There was the Leonardo Obera shooting on June 27th and he died also just last Sunday. Police shot a man already in custody outside headquarters downtown after he'd slipped out of some handcuffs. How has the department dealt with the officers involved in those two cases? The protocol typically is to put the officers on paid administrative leave while the uh, police department investigates the shootings. So that's what we've seen with those two cases that you've referenced. Um, the investigation essentially will run for months as they review video, interview witnesses, and um, one thing that I've found to be really interesting in the two cases that you reference is that police have um, released video pretty quickly, at least in the first case so far. Um, the video was released within 24 hours, and that was um, after several protesters took to the streets to demand more transparency in that shooting. And with the second shooting that you reference, um, police have said that they plan to release video by the end of the week. 
Um, that shooting happened Sunday, so that would be within a week. And that quick release isn't typical um, of the San Diego Police Department or really any agency. So as I referenced earlier, it appears to be that they are listening to these demands and pushes for transparency and accountability. Now, the San Diego City Council wants voters to weigh in on this. They placed a new police accountability measure on the November ballot. How would this change community oversight of the San Diego Police Department? So that measure would dissolve a current board that exists. And a lot of critics say that that board doesn't really have teeth uh, because it doesn't allow the board, the rules don't allow the board to conduct their own investigations. They essentially review uh, internal investigations to see if they agree with the findings. So this measure would create a, a whole new board. It would be more independent. It would uh, be able to subpoena witnesses and choose what investigations to launch, not just those that are coming from the police department. Um, they would also be able to recommend discipline, although at the end of the day, that would be left up to the uh, chief of police. And um, essentially, a lot of people are very happy about this move. They think it's uh, a move that would boost transparency and accountability and put more power into the, the hands of the community. Well, we'll see what voters do come November with, uh, with that issue. I've been speaking with David Hernandez, crime and public safety reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another week of stories at the KPBS Roundtable. I'd like to thank my guests, Joe Hong of KPBS News, Annie Heilbrunn, multimedia sports reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and David Hernandez, public safety reporter for the Union-Tribune. If you ever miss our show, you can download the KPBS Roundtable podcast on your favorite podcast app. I'm Mark Sauer. Thanks for being with us today, and join us again next week on The Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.